Hello and welcome to Around the World in 80 Minutes, the only foreign policy podcast on the internet that is currently doing 9 to 13 years in prison. I'm Sasha Rajavan. And I'm Peter Konchak. Today on the show we have Matthew McNaughton, who's going to be speaking with us about the Spanish elections, uh, Francisco Franco, and the situation in Catalonia. Sasha? The Matt McNaughton is a very special guest. He is our resident specialist in all things Spanish. Uh, we're glad to have you joining us. Uh, I'm happy to be here. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm honored that you consider me a, a specialist. I think that's the word you use. We can also call you an expert. Oh, an expert, yeah. Which, Only an expert can deal with this problem, well, let me tell you. Whichever you prefer, really. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. We can also there. combine the two. Just say, like, specialist expert or expert specialist. I think you know, the term really you're looking you. for is specspert. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Specspert. Nah, I, you know what? I'll just go with, like, guy on the street. How about that? That's, like, that's fine. Because that's, that's more how I feel about this, you know? Like, it's, it's not that I have special knowledge. It's just that I have probably more knowledge than 90% of Americans. So. I'm pretty sure guy off the street is, like, the ceiling for what we can expect from our podcast. So you, <laughs> you fit the bill perfectly. Fair. There we go. There we go. Well, I mean, like, I assume, right, like, the last the last guest that you had on was actually, like, a trained expert. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. Can I say that? Can I just say I'm doing my best? You can. That is always good to hear. <laughs> I think that also aligns with, with uh, the podcast's motto, which is doing our best. <laughs> you know what? That's fair. All right. Well, well, glad to be here in any, in any respect. Um, let's jump right into it. We, we teased our listeners with a, with a brief overview of what's happening in Spain a month ago, which is when they only announced the elections. Mm. And now that we've drawn closer to the date and things are <clears throat> happening there at an ever-increasing pace, mm. you know, I, I, we say this every episode, but like, the problem of doing a foreign policy podcast is that things are happening every day. And today there's been, like today alone, there's been tons of news. Uh, there's been news out of the UK. They finally reached the Brexit deal several hours back. Uh, a bunch of US officials are talking about Syria. The investigation with regard to Ukraine is ongoing. And so people might be wondering why we're focusing on Spain. And the answer to that is because we had this planned long ago and we are not going to forsake our schedule for anything. Mm. So here we are talking about Spain. And also this is still a very important thing. The Spanish elections, uh, it has obviously significant implications for Spain's future, but also for the EU's future, since Spain is not an insignificant player on the mainland. Mm. Uh, so let's start simple. Matt, what the hell is happening in Spain? Why are they having a fourth election in as many years? Uh, well, I'll just start with uh, they're having a fourth election in four years. Uh, the answer is technically just because in a parliamentary system, anything is possible. Uh, historically, uh, and, and by historically, I mean like uh, the, the past 40 years uh, since Spain transitioned uh, to a democracy, um, it's, been, it's been generally governed by these two parties. Um, they're kind of uh, center-left to left uh, uh, PSOE and, uh, and the, the center-right to right uh, uh, PP. Um, which so means, you have the 
Uh, the, the Partido Socialista Obrero Español, uh, which is like the, the, the Socialist Party, right, ostensibly, and the uh, Partido Popular, or like the People's Party, right? Um, and uh, so on the, on the left and then on the right, you have like a, a kind of very revolving, cl- like, they're called socialists, they're, they're basically, you know, the left wing on, in Spain, right? Like, conservatives, same kind of deal. They don't really go too far in either direction. Uh, they kind of revolve around this, this center. And they also, they have a kind of, you know, Democrat-Republican vibe, you know, which is strange for a, a, a parliamentary system, right, where they just kind of shift off every once in a while. You don't see a lot of, uh, like, you know, smaller parties showing up and doing anything, except recently. Yay. So in 2011, you, you saw the, the conservatives holding part, uh, you know, they, they came into power uh, under, under the, the wise leadership of Mariano Rajoy. And uh, in 2015, during that election, which was a regularly scheduled election, uh, you saw two new parties join the national scene. The first was uh, Podemos, which was, uh, uh, came out of the, the 15M, the, the Indignados movement. It was that's like a farther left party. It, it was anti-austerity, right? It, it wanted to uh, push against uh, some of the more conservative policies that have been put in place since 2011. Uh, and then you had Ciudadanos, which is like a, a true center party that that came on from Barcelona, kind of as a response to some of the stuff going on in Catalonia. They're a, a Spanish unity party. They uh, are anti-Catalonian independence. And in 2015, you saw them stealing from both the Socialist Party and the Conservative Party uh, to the tune of uh, 65 members for Podemos and 40 members for Ciudadanos. And how many Um, members are there in the Spanish Parliament overall? Ooh, that's a good question. I want to say somewhere in the 370, 400 range. You're very close. It looks like 350, Matt. Yeah. Three hundred fifty. So you're. That sounds good. You were within the the uh, the margin of error the basic, there. Margin of error, right? Correct. Yeah. I know that it's like once you get to one hundred and eighty, you have like a kind of stable coalition that you don't have to worry about too much. So that makes sense. So uh, one seventy five being the median. Super, um, super easy. Speaking of coalitions, joke here and and a transition mm. that goes with it. But first, uh, the the PSOE and the PP, the two mm. center left and center right parties. Right. Um, you mentioned that they're a little bit like Republicans and Democrats here. Are they? Is there that much daylight between them policy-wise and and yes. form? There is. Yeah, there is. It's not so much that it's that there's like a lot of like. It's 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 very similar actually. It's it's that there's this kind of social conservatism that you see in the in the Partido Popular. It's a it's a kind of uh, reliance on Catholic nationalism, anti. Uh, gay marriage, uh, anti-abortion, um, so the, the social politics comes into it. The Spanish unity part has come up uh, more recently with, um, I mean, there's no party, literally, like even Podemos, right? Like, most parties don't want to have to deal with the Catalonian issue. They, they're they generally pro-unity, but when you when it comes to this, the Conservative Party is much more interested in, in maintaining that. Uh, PSOE has historically been a bit more uh, acquiescent. They want to kind of maybe handle it a different way, right? Maybe devolve a little bit more power to that region mm-hmm. in order to give them, kind of like, you know, get them to shut up. That's their, their whole goal. But yes, so it's, there is daylight between them, but they, they 
are both right. They're both market. They're pro markets. They're they're generally interested in in uh, a, a kind of uh, wider liberal platform, pro democracy, both pro, like pro EU. So they 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 share a lot of you know common ground, which is not for nothing. But there is you know there there are significant differences as well. Is Spain suffering? Does Spain have a political force right now that can enable the country to fit into the broader global narrative that? You know, authoritarianism has been on the rise for the last couple of years. Or, although some are now saying that authoritarianism is on the way now. <laughs> yeah, they're they're riding the wave a little bit late, maybe. I, I mean, kind of. You saw in the most recent election, which we ha- we haven't even gotten to the second election. Let's be completely honest here. This is this is going to take a while. But in the most recent election in in April, you uh, saw the emergence of the new far right par- uh, party, Vox. And they are more traditionally what you would consider a far-right party. They are anti-immigration. They're pro-national uh, culture. They have a, a national. Uh, they have an emphasis on on, on being Spanish, Spa- Spain for the Spaniards. They tend to kind of shy away from some of the more explicit stuff that you see in other far-right parties. They they're not anti-immigration completely. They just want to kind of have it shut down a little bit. They don't want to um, leave the EU, but they want to not be as involved in the EU, right? They, they're soft Eurosceptic, you would call them. So it's it's less... Man, Spain just has such an interesting history with the far right that I wish we could talk about, and we might talk about a little bit, but it's just too much, right? Like, just in terms of their quote-unquote fascist baggage... It's not quote unquote. It's actual. You know, it's they were ruled by a fascist dictator for many years. Around, so dealing with that, you might expect them to ha- share a lot of similarities with maybe Italy or Germany uh, from a from the similar time period uh, when they overlapped. But they they really have their own whole far right thing going on well, to, uh, to the point of skepticism of euroscepticism soft euroscepticism has actually become more of the norm over, ever since brexit right like, yeah. once all of the far right parties saw what the uk was thrust into after brexit happened they all realized that they're not going to be able to sell that narrative to their own constituencies and so you see the the renamed national front in france i don't remember <laughs> they renamed themselves you see sure, uh, sure. like in germany alternative for deutschland uh, you see the the, the Partei für Freiheit in in the Netherlands, the Freedom Party, mm. and the analogously named Freedom Party in Austria. All of these far right parties came out of the woodwork. They're like, maybe we're not going to be trying to convince people that we need to leave the EU. Right, maybe right. we'll just right, like you said, be a little bit less involved. And because Vox was so late to the party, that's their default position. They didn't have right. To that's be, where they that's right. where they jumped in. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Um, and I think that's kind of where I wanted to eventually go with it, right, is that, you know, it, in the same way that Spain had a unique form of, of fascism in, in Francoism, right, in the in the Falange, Vox is treading this really fine line between a more, like, Jean-Marie Le Pen, right, and a, and a just ultra, ultra-Orthodox Catholic vision of, of what Spain should be. I, so, in that way, it's this kind of blend that's more leaning towards conservative extremism than full-on fascism. Is there, does, does Vox enjoy their support uh, in a particular part of the country? I ask because like the, another trend related to this that we've seen over the last several years is that mm. um, 
it's right, it's the urban-rural split. Sure. And so I would expect that them to enjoy what support they do have comes from the provinces. It's really hard to figure out exactly where all that support is coming from because it, it's it's a lot of um, it's a lot of support from various places. It's kind of because because again, right? We're talking about a, a, a different type of system of government. It's not like a, a federally kind of uh, you you elect people based on like a percentage of the vote, and then you get your seats apportioned to you, blah, blah, blah. But I think that, if I'm recalling correctly, Vox has a, a wider support in uh, the uh, direct north and on the eastern uh, side of the country, which is not exactly what you would expect. I mean, Spain is also just very bizarre geographically. It doesn't always line up with specific, like specific regions are, are rural, and then you have other regions that are that are more urban like right next to each other so it's it's harder to exactly map that that very easily plus doesn't spain have essentially like three separate secessionist or secessionist adjacent uh regions like re regions that have a history uh, of considering yeah. <laughs> you could say considering yes yeah, um that's that's probably the best way to phrase it it's yeah, again, I don't want to get too in the weeds here, uh, especially because we're eventually going to be talking about uh, Catalonia. But yeah, there, there's uh, three regions in the north that are traditionally thought of as having, uh, at least historically, some sort of secessionist movement. The one that's actually been most famous over the years, and it's something that like millennials might not remember if they weren't like paying attention to the news in like the 2000s uh the basque region of spain was famous for having a uh, separatist movement that was basically run by terrorists for a very long time it's like the the spanish version of like farc eta which is a escadita ascatsuna was a a secessionist part of of northern spain north central the basque region that was responsible for killing like upwards of you know thousands of people including famously the the prime minister of of Spain during the transition you know prime minister in quotes still a, still a fascist but the the appointee of Franco killing him actually probably led to the democracy that we live in right now uh, in Spain but it also killing a lot of other people a lot of journalists a lot of uh, politicians a lot of citizens uh, so but they they disarmed in 2011 so you haven't heard too much about them uh, recently that might actually be a pretty good transition into the Catalonia issue. Would you be willing to uh, give our listeners a little bit of the background of that issue over, say, the past decade or so, how it's been developing? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, this is definitely not an area that I feel like is easily communicated. Very, very complicated history going on here, but I'll try to, you know, give it my best shot. Uh, especially if I'm just concentrating on like since like maybe 2011, but I do want to say right in pre in preparation for this that I'm going to try to be as apolitical as possible here. I'll talk about how I feel about it eventually, maybe if that's what we're going for. But in the at least in the beginning, I want to kind of just give a more blanket facts first kind of understanding of of the of the situation. A dispassionate overview. That's why we're here. I mean, I'm all about dispassionate, right? Mm. Like, if I hear excitement, I, I, you know, curl up in a ball and hide. Until no, no, it's we back off. We actually cut out any and all emotion from our podcast. I hope you do, because I, I can't handle that. 
So, Catalonia, in the northeast of Spain, button up right against France. Distinct region. It's got its own heritage, its own culture, its own language. Uh, it goes back centuries as its own separate little county. It was the crown seat of Aragon for a very brief period, trading off with Valencia uh, and later into Italy. But when the when the fusion happened, right, that's when, when modern Spain kind of, uh, in, 19, in 1469, you saw this coming together of Spain as a cohesive whole for the first time. And with it, Catalonia. Today, Catalonia makes up about 20% of Spain's GDP, a little bit less. And uh, for, uh, for, for Spain, that's very important. And for the Catalonians, that's very important. Uh, economically, uh, they, they occasionally feel a little bit pressured, especially because you have a system in place uh, in Spain where most of the ability to tax uh, and to control the the funds right of, of your own region, first all the taxation goes to central Spain, to the federal government, and then they disperse it out back into, into the regions. And so the inability to control that uh, is very frustrating to a lot of people. Over the past decade, uh, since 2011, you've seen support for independence almost double. Uh, usually it kind of hovers around like 20% in the, in the beginning of the 21st century and at the end of the 20th. But it's, it's recently been around 40, uh, upwards of, of 40. I think it peaked around like 47%. It's mostly probably in response to two main things. Uh, in 2011, as I said earlier, you had Spain come under Mariano Rajoy's cabinet. Conservative, austerity-driven. Catalonians felt like, you know, maybe Spain was taking too much from them. Uh, this was also on the heels of the 2008 uh, recession. The housing bubble collapse hurt Spain a lot. There was a lot of building in Spain uh, in the early 2000s, just wiped out a lot of money in 2007. Independence bracketed. I think that most Catalonians really, really hate the idea that Spain controls their finances. Whether or not that means that they want to be their own country, I, I, I think that one of the key things here is, is this financial control. So uh, also to remember, in 2006, Catalonia produced a new statute of autonomy, which is kind of the way, it's like they're, they're, Spain is not a federal system, but it gives a lot of autonomy to the different provinces. They call them autonomous communities. Catalonia is its own autonomous community, and they got a new constitution, essentially, a new state constitution in 2006 that, that gave them a little bit more power. And the Spanish government approved this. Uh, and then in 2014, there was a non-binding referendum asking if Catalonia should be a state and independent, um, and this was right. This is before the 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 more recent 2016 binding quote referendum. Uh, this one was it was originally going to be binding, and then Rajoy stepped in and said, "No, it's not going to be binding. This is dumb." The independence movement, like in 2016, won in the landslide, but because there were not a lot of participation from people who were not voting for independence it was it was kind of the spanish government you took this as a a way to suggest that this was not a you know this was not a, a this was not worth anyone's attention like they they said don't vote in this election it doesn't mean anything people didn't vote and therefore it doesn't it doesn't matter nobody nobody should take this with a grain of salt in 2016 Puigdemont, who was the president 
uh, of the government of Catalonia took this as his way of saying, look, there is pro-independence sentiment in Catalonia. Uh, so he, he took it upon himself to rally support for separatism again, installed a binding referendum, and, and let, let that go to work. How did that go over in Madrid? Uh, not well. So the Spanish constitution, famously, any constitution really, not super keen on secession. They don't usually include a legal method for it because they don't want people to do it. There is some ambiguity about whether the language in the Constitution says that it's not acceptable, it's not possible, or if there's just no pathway there. But I would say the mainstream opinion is that it's just not possible. And so Madrid, led by Rajoy, said this referendum was also illegitimate. They encouraged uh, supporters of Spanish unity to not vote again, and that the the illegitimacy, uh, illeg- that the illegitimacy uh, would make the results unbinding again. I do want to say that the odds were never in Catalan's favor that they would win. They've never hit 50% in any poll of pro-independence sentiment. That did not stop the Spanish government from, uh, let's say, interfering uh, in the election, uh, shutting down polling places, destroying pamphlets, arresting a lot of people. There was just a, a, a lot of police violence. And it, it didn't look good, regardless of where you stand on, on you know, Spain's role as a, as a, as a union of, of separate autonomous communities, um, whether or not you're pro-independence or not. There was a lot of police brutality. And uh, the, the international community, which is usually like, you know, let's not interfere with this stuff, right? Like, this is every, every country gets to resolve its own internal problems by itself. You know, there, there's a little bit of like, uh, I, don't, I don't know about this, right? Like, a little bit of, uh, you can't really turn a blind eye to, to some of the, the, the more egregious stuff. And I, we didn't really get to this earlier, but Franco died in uh, 1975, uh, which is uh, less than 50 years ago well within living memory and he's not really popular in Catalonia like there's a reason why and it's because he would do this all the time where he would come in with a bunch of police whenever the Catalonians would be getting too rowdy put down the region rearrange the regional cabinet and and it 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 didn't it didn't reflect well that Rajoy did basically the same thing so there was a lot of people who were probably not pro-independence who were kind of like, well, why is Madrid doing this? Why is Madrid stepping in in this particular way? And so then there's the other issue of this Catalonian Declaration of Independence that occurred, and the, yes. uh, as you indicated, the referendum was held, and then there was this subsequent uh, flight of the Catalonian leadership Yes. Uh, to other parts of Europe, and now there are people who have been, uh, uh, who uh, legal processes have been uh, initiated and concluded against, and then subsequent protests uh, have have erupted in in Barcelona as a as a response to that. Could you just go into that a little more deeply and sort of walk us through how some of those things, what the implications of some of those things are? Uh, sure. Some of our listeners might have booked flights to Barcelona, and they would be ill-advised to follow through right now. Uh, Barcelona is beautiful this time of year. Uh, ooh, bad joke, bad joke, sorry. Ooh, uh, <laughs> ooh they blocked ooh, not the airport. Mine. The airport ooh. is shut down. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oof. Uh, all right, so like you said, 
post post referendum, uh, I think forty two percent turnout, ninety two percent independence. You know, makes sense given the the expected demographic uh, polling. Puigdemont was like, "All right, let's go independence." Right? We got we got the results. This is how it works. October twenty seventh. There was a brief window where Catalonia was an independent state. Rajoy then uh, responded in kind. He declared Puigdemont and most of his cabinet uh, enemies of the state, seditionists, and uh, in open rebellion. He disbanded the regional government, and uh, a lot of them just ran away. Puigdemont went to Belgium, where he's been pretty much this whole time. I think he, he was recently in, in Germany for some reason. But uh, all the while, Spain has been trying to extradite him and a couple other people. And, uh, and none of the other European governments are really, are really biting. I think mostly because they're not interested in being a part of a political thing. And it's uh, not like any of them are huge supporters of Puigdemont. It's just that they, they just want nothing to do with this. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, at this point, there's the argument, and I'm not endorsing this argument or, or not endorsing it, but like, it, it, would he be, in some sense, a political prisoner based on this question. And so a lot of them are saying, listen, we'll give you him if you're going to try him for being a a like corrupt public servant, but if you're going to try him as a seditionist, we're not gonna we're not gonna extradite him. Right. Again, no comment on that right now. But again, uh, more recently you've gotten these uh long jail sentences finally coming up in uh guilty uh, punishments, guilty punishments. Is that the word we use? Nope. Uh, guilty, sure. guilty. Yes, that is the technical legal term. I, that's fact. what I. You know, you guys are the lawyers, right? I just, I just, I just read the news. Um, As opposed to innocent punishments. Right. Well. Right. Exactly. Well, wait. Would that be an innocent exoneration then? I think it would be a, an innocent plea of exoneration. Yes. But a guilty punishment. Okay. Good. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of these were jail sentences. A lot of people got around, you know, between six and twelve years for either sedition or misuse of public funds or I don't think anyone was tried for rebellion um, which would would, would uh, end up with a, a longer uh, jail sentence. I'm going to keep playing the foil today. And uh, how did these guilty punishments play in Barcelona? <laughs> well, not well. There's been a lot of unrest recently in Barcelona. You may have seen some of the images recently uh, that have come up on Twitter and the news media of things on, shall we say, fire, blockades in streets, barricades in the El Prat airport, some even in uh, Madrid's Barajas airport. Uh, I would say the unrest is probably only going to get bigger in the next couple days because Spain really has no way of handling it because they don't have a government. And that's a problem. <laughs> because if they had someone who could maybe... Govern? Govern, negotiate some sort of agreement with Catalonia, figure out some way to make it right in some capacity, you're not going to make it right, but like... Is there a way this can be resolved politically? Yes. Is it going to happen? No. And especially not right now. And, Spain, and so, Spain's yeah. Spain's track there's... record isn't helping. Spain's track record is definitely not helping. Again, a lot of people remember Franco. 
they're not happy about what's going on right now. You have protesters. You know, for the first time, really, right? In 2016 and 2017, you had a lot of protests, but they were mostly nonviolent. 2019, you're starting to see some violent protests. You're also seeing continuation of police violence against protesters. Hold up. In uh, Barcelona, the, pro- the protests over the sentencing, they've been more or less peaceful so far. All the violence has been on the local police's side. Where am, well, I, am I wrong? Yes, mostly. Um, For now, like we don't yeah. know what's going to happen tomorrow. Well, I don't, I don't, I want to put a huge asterisk next to peaceful because it's true that it's been generally peaceful, but you've seen more violence in the past couple days than has been. Because again, in 2016, 2017, 99% nonviolent, right? It was not a question of, you know, any sort of impropriety on the protesters' part. Recently, it's more in question exactly what is going on, just because it's it's only been about three days, and there's been a lot more upscale rioting, right? Destruction of property, that kind of stuff. So, so it seems it seems like all of these issues are interrelated. And uh, mm. before we zoom out again, or before we return to the elections, speaking of Franco, could you give us an overview of what's been going on with? With Franco's body? Oh, man, the Franco corner. I love this part. I think you referred to this offline as uh, Franco Mausoleum Gate. Mm-hmm. I like that term. So Francisco Franco is buried in a not-ostentatious-sounding grave in what is known as the Valley of the Fallen. I want you, if you haven't, both listeners and you guys, uh, if you haven't seen what this place looks like, I want you to Google it at some point because it's absolutely that's a castle. Mon- monstrously beautiful and gaudy at the same time. Wait, that's just a palace. Well, yeah, it's a huge mausoleum with an even bigger cross in tucked into a, a beautiful little serene little valley. This actually uh, looks this looks like Minas Tirith. Uh, kind of, yeah, uh, and that's where Franco is buried, and uh, he's buried not with his wife, but with the other uh, Falange leader, Rivera, Primo de Rivera. And uh, and what, he's there. He's buried with all of these unmarked graves where a bunch of the dead from the Civil War, political prisoners, who also built this thing. I'm not going to be apolitical with Franco. I can't. Built by, you know, ostensibly slave labor. And, uh, and interred there where all of the right-wing morons can go and uh, give their salutes and his remains deserve to be nowhere near at the level of honor that they are right now. Also, I want to kind of insert really quickly here that during the transition to democracy, you had what is informally known as uh, the Pact of Forgetting in Spain, which is basically a response to the Amnesty Law of 77 that was like, uh, all of Franco's war crimes and all of the people who were associated with him, uh, we're just going to ignore them. Classic. So you can't prosecute anyone for anything that happened between 1936 and 1975. This is a this is a national. This is Spanish domestic law, right? This is Spanish domestic law. Um, in 2006, there was an attempt. I think 2006, maybe 2005. Uh, the Zapatero government tried to uh, respond to it by saying, "Yeah, this is kind of a dumb idea. Maybe we should uh, maybe we should rethink this." Uh, they did not get very far because the commission that they put together to figure out how to deal with it. The report came out, I feel like, maybe three days after 2011's 
election where Rajoy won the majority, and the Rajoy government was like, mm, I don't really want to have to deal with this right now, and and, and it's kind of been shelved uh, since then. Uh, but yeah, so Pedro Sanchez, the leader of the PSOE and the kind of interim, uh, the steward of Spain, after he was un- incapable of, of putting together a, a coalition in, in April, has been trying to get his remains out of the Valley of the Fallen. And do what with them? Uh, move them to a different location. I think most people want them moved to El Pardo, which is a different palace area where his wife is buried and where he can, you know, all the dumbasses can go and worship him there, but maybe in a more reserved light. But uh, he's faced a lot of, I don't want to say backlash, I don't think that's right, a lot of pushback from everyone from the right-wing parties, right, Partido Popular y Ciudadanos, who are like, everywhere on the position from this is this should not be happening to I don't want to have to deal with this so we shouldn't be doing it um, to people who say no Franco still deserves to be honored for you know his role in in keeping Spain you know from the evil clutches of of the communists it's just Oh, oh, and the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is also very uh, pro-Franco staying where he is right now for, you know, the combination of uh, we don't want to disturb someone's remains and also Catholic Church notoriously pro-Franco. Unfortunate. But- well, to, to your point, um, it might be worth noting, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on what you think of this. Um, Spanish history is very at least recent Spanish history, is very interesting in part because you had the rise of Franco during the Civil War, mm-hmm. wherein the, uh, the fascist uh, rebels were supported by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy, uh, but yet Spain was neutral during the Second World War officially. Mm-hmm. And so you had this opportunity for uh, more or less informal an informal U.S.-Spanish alliance. Right. And so it seems as though to me, and, I, and I, again, I just want to get your thoughts as to uh, the way that you look at this, mm-hmm. it seems to me as though that uh, very unique course of Spanish history relative to the rest of Europe has mm-hmm. had a pretty profound impact on Spanish politics relative to the rest of the continent, especially when we talk about uh, the rise of the far right, the rise of, of nationalism, that they're uh, not nearly as as far removed from some of those elements as is, say, Germany or Hungary, uh, etc. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that there is definitely, I, again, you know, each each brand... Each name brand of, of, of far-right politics is, is different, is unique in its own way. But I definitely think that Spain has a very, a very unique kind of take on, on what it means to be, uh, you know, like what, like what Franco believed in, which didn't, it, it doesn't line up exactly with what a lot of the other fascist countries thought. When, you know, Hitler and, and the Axis powers, you know, they, they were not opposed to Franco stepping in. And Franco was not super opposed, depending on who you ask, to stepping in. But they, I mean, when you have a civil war, you lose a lot of people. And your ability to 
engage militarily is 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 definitely uh, uh, reduced. And so, coming out of the civil war, it was hard for the Axis to to shore up an agreement that Spain would 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 come in um, and and fight with them. That's definitely one thing I want to make sure that that gets out there. Uh, but uh, additionally, yeah, I mean, so by not doing that, they kind of made it possible for the U.S. to reach out in the 50s and create a strategic alliance against uh, the, the rise of uh, communism in the East. And, and definitely, in how I understand it, uh, propped up Franco uh, in a way that probably would not have... I, I, I don't know if he would have, you know, there would have been another civil war, if he would have been replaced by a different general, if something else would have happened... But uh, there was there were a lot of things going on in the '50s with regard to Franco's uh, economic policy in Spain that were shaped by a combination of the the involvement of Opus Dei and uh, U.S. U.S. involvement that that kind of liberalized the country a little bit, at least economically, and allowed him, I would say, another maybe like 15 years in in full power. But again, right, like it's so dumb and complicated the fascists in spain were allies with the monarchists and the monarchists really didn't like the fascists but they didn't like the communists more and so you had like anti-fascist monarchist violence in like the early 20th or in the late 20th century that just it it doesn't to an american and to i i think to most europeans it just doesn't make sense because you're like no you guys are all on the same side and it's like no there's like all these little dumb sects that all want wanted different things uh during the transition to democracy and and i think you're seeing that kind of come out again with the with vox and 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 the and the pp like in in the earlier election this year uh in april you had a kind of swing to the right with the emergence of vox the partido popular y ciudadanos both just went full-on right they they were like, oh, we don't want to we don't want to lose votes to these guys. We don't want them in government, so we're gonna we're gonna take this right turn. And it didn't work out for them at all. And so immediately after the election, you had them swing right back. It was like whiplash, right? You had Pablo Casado like going like, all right, well that didn't work. Uh, we're gonna return to the center and we're gonna govern from there. Uh, and you had uh, Albert Rivera of the of the Ciudadanos going like, oh, we never really we never really went to the right. You know, it was just kind of like pretend where it was like no that we've always believed in all of these things that we're talking about because they realized that there's like all of these sects are just going to go with whoever agrees with them most and so if you, you can't pretend you can't be inauthentic the monarchists are going to want the monarchists and the fascists are going to want the fascists and if you if you try to combine if you try to have an alliance you're going to need an actual alliance between parties not a coalition-y you know you're going to need the the Falange Fet y de las Hons, right? You're not gonna have you're not gonna have a, a, a unity right government. It's just not gonna work in the same way that they want it to. In the same way that you saw the, the PSOE and, and Podemos, you know, their their coalition you know talks broke down because what Sanchez wanted and what, what Iglesias wanted were were on different sides of the spectrum, especially you know in terms of governing and in terms of governance, right? One wanted a minority government and one wanted the uh coalition that would let them into the cabinet so it's i don't know if i completely answered your question there but i wanted to kind of get a lot of those thoughts out there 
<laughs> no, I thought it was a good answer. It was comprehensive. Yeah, yeah and, you know, uh, I guess sort of just going off of that, I, I believe I'm correct in saying that Spain actually has a, a relatively, uh, and that's relative to uh, other countries in Europe, a relatively long history of, uh, or traditions of democracy. Is that not correct? That they've had a parliamentary system, a constitutional uh, monarchy they, on and off for for a while yes. now? Yes. Um, in the specific, I like that final thing that you said, on and off, because it was very on and off, to the, to, to the tune of like every decade they would go from being uh, like uh, a monarchy to a constitutional monarchy to a full republic to another constitutional monarchy to brief dictatorship to monarchy to republic. Um, so quickly, so quickly regarding the brief dictatorship, though, like, the, and we are way off topic, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. the, the, Spain's brand of politics and Spain's mm-hmm. brand of more extreme movements on the political spectrum. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you can say the the thing about every country that oh, this country's political system is unique, and their po- po- sure. politics are unique. And right. You can say that about Spain, but with Spain specifically, it seems like it's its own hyper unique brand of of special, mm. right? Mm. So, like, despite the fact that Spain has this long and venerable history of granted on and off democracy, Spain mm. is also the only. With aside from Portugal, the only country whose dict- uh, in in Western Europe whose dictators survived long after World War II, Franco mm. and Salazar are the only two who made it out of World War II intact and, st- and right. still held on to their rule for decades afterwards. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm cur- I know very little about Portugal, uh-huh. uh, and I don't know how analogous the situation was there as it was in Spain. But mm. it, is is Spain's unique? character of politics to blame for Franco's ability to, to retain his rule or is the should the um, the blame should the blame be spread uh-huh. evenly between the situation in Spain and uh-huh. Franco's own ability or should it be weighted more heavily towards one or the other yeah I mean that's a good question <laughs> awesome awesome no back no, to no, the no, question I, I wanted i wanted to be really really snide there for a second but yeah no i mean like that's a really really good question because like you know is spain you know uniquely situated in a particular way like here's a here's a difference between spain and, and most of rest of europe and also portugal at the time portugal and spain being different um spain was not heavily industrialized at all right uh going into uh, the 20th century, Spain was still a mostly agrarian country with almost little, like very little industrial output. Most of their industrial output was in Catalonia, and so whenever uh, there were revolutions uh, or or unrest or unhappiness, there was no robust economic system that they could rely on. Right there, there was there was neither the landlord nor the tenant. So the 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 way that the early 1930s shook out was different than how it shook out in other countries to the point where and this is like kind of you know you know fun dumb knowledge but like the USSR right heavily invested in in Spain in the on the republican side mostly because they were anti-fascist but also because like they wanted you know communism in Spain Spain had a, a burgeoning far-left movement going on uh, in the North in terms of anarchism, you know, far-left communist sympathies. But 
they were also not interested in revolution at the time because they said your industry your ability to create objects to produce <laughs> to produce material is so garbage it's so garbage here that if we were to have a revolution in your country it would you would you would fall apart in in seconds so the USSR who is you know always trying to find different ways to to sow you know revolution in different countries famously like let's not do that in Spain mm, that sounds like a that sounds like a recipe for disaster not going to happen nope you know France yes oh yeah let's get some communes let's get some shit going on France uh, you know France yes definitely Germany let's try it you know let's see what happens Spain mm, mm, we got to get that industry going we got to get something we got to you need the means. You can't seize the means of production if there's no means of production, right? right? So that's obviously just changed over the years, real quickly. Obviously, oh yeah, the, the, definitely. The, the, the contemporary, the modern separatist movements in Spain, those have the Kremlin's way behind them, a hundred percent. Oh yeah, definitely. But I mean, like, for right for reasons, you know, trying to sow plenty of you know dissent in the region and right, right, and. Right you know, breaking apart countries and stuff. In the same way with Scotland, right? Mm -hmm. um, I know we've talked about that before. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. But just a, a fun anecdote that might explain part of it, right? That Spain, Spain's uniqueness might come from the fact that they, you know, they spent all their gold on, on fancy palaces and, and fancy, you know, cookies um, that they got from pillaging South America. And when it came time to actually have a, you know, sustainable economy, they kind of didn't think that was important. <laughs> well, and that's also something pretty interesting to note about uh, Spain as well, right? Because uh, it's, on the one hand, it's a major force in Europe in some respects, but uh, in terms of sort of politically and economically, it's it's recognized as as an important power there. But on the other hand, there are some ways, especially in, in foreign affairs, that it seems to be relatively uh, marginalized, at least when you consider the role of, uh, until Brexit, the UK, as well as Italy, France, Germany. Do you have any thoughts on, on uh, what that relationship is like, just what, you, what your conception is of, of how much power Spain has in Europe and those, those various, uh, along those various vectors of activity? Yeah, I mean, I would say that Spain, I'm definitely not, I'm not as well versed in in how Spain operates um, in in the eurozone as a member of the EU, as a member of NATO. But I mean, they they've they were part of the the, the original cadre of people to join to join the eurozone. Uh, they're part of uh, the Schengen group. They are all on the euro. They're ability to i mean they're they're not on the they're not permanent fixtures on the on the UN defense council you know they're not they're, they're not player big players militarily like i mean part of it right is just that they don't like what do they have to offer the rest of the world uh like you know i would say they have a lot to offer i would say they have you know it's really cool you know spain is an awesome place there's a lot of tourism there's a lot of history but in terms of like economic production, they they fall behind a lot of Europe. In terms of uh, their their political influence, I think they're marginalized by virtue of just not they're they're right next to France, right? And France plays a huge role. And who's their other major person right next to them is is the UK. 
and they can bully Portugal a little bit, probably, but, like, that's, you know, Iberia is a small place. So, it's, I would say that it, it, it it's really this, this frustration on Spain's part, post-transition to democracy, to develop any sort of regional power is probably fine with them. I, I, I'm struggling right now to think of a, a a less Spanish mode of thinking than, like, let's go take a siesta. It's, it's not that they don't want to be power players. It's just that... They're not going to lose any sleep over it. Yeah, right. Like they get up, they go to they go to vote, right, and then they 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 forget about it for a little bit. Except if you're in Catalonia or the Basque region or whatever, you know. But like they they haven't been plagued by a lot of the same problems that all of the the other countries, right? Until recently, they didn't have a far right response to you know refugees and immigration, right? That has been. You know, plaguing the Mediterranean for the last, you know, ten years, they, you know, handled that pretty, pretty well. They had a lot of refugees, right? The two main ports of entry, right, or the three being, you know, Greece, Italy, and Spain. You know, they, they, they dealt with it in the same way, right? When, when during the Iraq War, Spain was one of the first countries to pull out under Zapatero. He was like, "We're not doing this anymore. Like, <laughs> they're gonna go their own way." And Bush was like, that sucks, you know, don't do this to me. And he was like, I don't care, I'm going to do it, because this is what Spain does. So Spain kind of just does what it wants to do. Really what? Really quickly, yeah. because we're, we're running out of time, and <laughs> really quickly, he says, asking an incredibly loaded question. How heavily and how actively uh-huh. does Spain's history, does its, its literature, its art, mm. how present is it, or, or mm. how present are all these things from Spanish history, in contemporary politics and contemporary discourse, so like in these elections, how deeply are uh, thoughts, uh, thought setters, trendsetters, politicians, how deeply will they be drawing on the well of Spanish history in their discussion about Spanish, uh, Spain's future? I think that depends on how far right you're going. In Vox, you know, they're going to appeal to a sense of Spanish unity, uh, a sense of, of Spain being this you know, place for Spanish people, and that the Spanish people are all of the people in Spain. This, you know, Spain has been created for this this central identity, this Spanishness, this culture that we've that we've kind of monolithically had, or that they're gesturing to, whether or not it exists. You know, who knows? So they're going to be using Spanish culture as a kind of. I mean, that's part of also you know what the what the Partido Popular did in 2011 and 2015. You know, you weaponize certain issues. Bullfighting. Bullfighting is, you know, of Spanish tradition. Most people think that bullfighting is like, you know, this thing where like a guy in fancy pants goes and, and, you know, messes with a bull for a little bit and then kills the bull. But, you know, in reality, bullfighting is a little bit messier. You kind of, you know, the bull is not going to just do whatever it will, you know, it's not going to be mad unless you make it mad. So you got to beat the shit out of the bull make it mad, put it out there, and then have a, a dude, you know, slowly stab it to death, right? You know, it's something that maybe sounds good, you know, when you're watching it, but, like, you know, it also strikes people, you know, the, the wrong way in a lot of ways. Where does the line in culture, you know, draw? Or where, where do you draw that line? Is, is bullfighting an integral part of Spanish culture that deserves to be defended? 
Uh, or is it something maybe, you know, we move to something else? Maybe we rely on flamenco a little bit more or something, you know? <laughs> I, I, there's, you know, there may be other things. But, you, you but bullfighting, put... bullfighting is, a, is a pillar that people, that, that, the, that the right has relied on to, to be like, this is Spain. And in Spain, we have bullfighting. And anyone who doesn't like bullfighting is not Spanish. I guess bullfighting is like their guns, right? Like, if you don't have a gun... And you, are you even American? And if right. you don't like bullfighting, are you Spanish? You can't put a disclaimer that says no animals were hurt in the production of this show and uh, bullfighting. No. no, literally not. Though ironically, you can put that on a gun show. Oh yeah, probably, yeah. Okay, bringing this back in. Back into the present <laughs> day. We, we got way, way off. Topic. Sorry, I knew, I knew I was going to be going into the weeds. So, you know, I... I, I the weeds are what we're here for in that. <laughs> Yeah, if we, if, I think I, if we do not urge anybody to summarize all the things that we've said that we're here for because I think you'll you'll find mutually yeah, exclusive things. We're definitely here for a lot of things. All right, let's, yes. let's talk about the elections that are about to happen in less than a month. What do oh you boy. think? Is, what do you think is going to happen? Which parties November. are poised to make gains? Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? November tenth. Uh, okay, so I'm going to take out my prognosticating crystal ball here. There's two things that the polls reflect that we should all be aware of. Uh, first, that the, the true center party, Ciudadanos, is hugely down. Just lost a ton of points. It lost some... It, it, it gained a bunch of seats in, in, in April, so it's, it's just going back down again. Second, the uh, center-right party, Partido Popular, is up. And it's up by a, an amount that is, you could see, analogous to how far Ciudadanos has, has fallen. So there's been a bit of a trade there. Other than that, it's really hard to tell exactly what's going to happen. You can see Vox gaining a couple seats, some sort of, you know, hellscape opening up, uh, them gaining some some ground. I could see, like, one of the things that I want to stress right now is that Sanchez, the current president of Spain, the, well, that's its own thing. Oh, okay. It, it's his title is Presidente, but that's usually translated as Prime Minister. Uh, oh, so the translators are just wrong. <laughs> well, no, because he's, he's head of, Right, it's the whole thing where it's like, you know, the king is the head of state, but he's the head of the government. And so, like, usually that means he's the he's the Prime Minister, but it's just how it works. Awesome. I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but, so... So he could he he's been dealing with this whole Catalonian crisis, right? This whole thing, like whatever that is, whatever's happening in Catalonia, like you know who knows. But he's dealing with it, and he has no power to deal with it because he's not been invested with any power. But he's he's you know striking a more conciliatory tone. He's trying to be like, all right, like let's let's have some sort of discussions about how we want to handle this moving forward. Uh, the new president of Barça of of Catalonia. I don't know how to pronounce this. Kim Tora is is in discussions with him. It's not going well, reportedly. And so, depending on how the rest of Spain feels about the Catalonian issue, they they might be inclined to not vote for him. Which is, you know, like the the, the socialists won like somewhere near sixty seats in the last election. I feel like they are the the largest party by far, um, following April, but they could easily lose a lot of that. So, I, it's, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm giving every possible 
iteration of what this this election could be, but it's really it, you know you know European polling is hard. Spain, who knows? Who literally knows? I don't know. What I do know is that I'm guessing that there's going to be two outcomes of the election. Either we're heading for election five in 2020, or you're going to see a PSOE minority government. So with Sanchez still in charge. Sanchez in charge. Sanchez famously ousted in 2017, coming back in 2018 to become prime minister. Famous, famous man, famous words, famous last words, I resign from my seat, uh, and, then, and then coming back to be the prime minister. The king is dead, long live the king. Yeah. <laughs> the, king, the king is dead, long live the same king. <laughs> right. The king has abdicated, oh, he's back. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. uh, Speak, speaking of the king, actually. Uh, Spain has a king, uh, so you know maybe he decides to to do something weird. Since this is a foreign policy podcast, from primarily you know, the American perspective, mm. what? And obviously, there's a huge asterisk here that nothing even remotely coherent with regard to Spain or any other part of the globe is going to be taken in the near future. But what mm. should U.S. foreign policy towards, I guess, towards the chaos in Spain cur- mm. currently be? Uh that's hard to answer. Uh, In two minutes or fewer. (laughs) Well, yeah. Like, I don't really want Spain to do anything foreign policy-wise with, 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 or you know, the U.S. to do anything with with Spain right now, for a variety of reasons. But in general, maybe (sighs) I don't really know. I really don't know because there's uh, like there's an element of me that's like, yeah, you know, the U.S. you know maybe. Like, what can they do, really? Right. right? Like, what's the, like, they deal with the EU as a body now. So, sure, they can do something. Like, they have plenty of, like, military bases in Spain. Like, they can involve themselves internationally as observers in Catalonia. Sure. I think that the U.S. would do well to just be more observant of Europe in general. Right? Like... Pay attention to what's going on over there, right, Spain included. Ho- hopefully that, um, that starts happening once we have a functional government again with a funded State Department. Right, right, right. So it's 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 hard right now to be like, what do I want the U.S. to do in Spain? Probably leave it alone. Probably don't do anything for the next, like, you know, two to six years. And then afterwards, maybe we can figure something out. Don't I, talk to it, Mary. Don't encourage it. Yeah, yeah. Like, I fear... I fear a lot for what's going to happen in Catalonia uh, over the coming years, because if you get a conservative government involved, I they're going to take the kid gloves off, and if you have a more left government involved, you're going to see a lot deeper unrest in the region for probably negotiating purposes. So, I, I just... I don't know. I don't know. To that point, though, uh, maybe not with respect to U.S. policy towards Spain, mm-hmm. but perhaps Spanish policy towards Catalonia right. uh, as an internal issue. What do you think the uh, the policy should be should be there? I obviously you just <laughs> express, expressed uh, skepticism about what some of the solutions would, uh, solutions would potentially be from one or the other side. Right. But uh, 
what what do you think would be the the ideal end state and how do you see potentially that uh that spain would get there i think the only way that spain comes out of this a kind of in one piece let's say is to tear up their constitution again and, and figure out a better way to work it as it stands the the common regime that financially restricts a lot of what catalonia has to deal with is a huge impediment the self-governing is is a is is a is on the forefront of a lot of catalonians who want to be a part of spain right like people who are pro spain pro union are still like there's too much interference right there's too much federal involvement in each of these regions from you know the basque region which probably has the most independence of any region in spain to galicia in the northwest you have these these this frustration stemming from the idea that you you don't feel castellano right like you feel like you're a part of spain but you're not like you're not you're not Spanish alone. You're Spanish and Catalonian. You're Spanish and Galician. You you want to involve all parts of your identity. You don't want to have to strip it away um, and kind of get this blander version of it. And so devolving more power to each of the autonomous communities is going to inevitably be the solution in some form. You can't keep dissolving local governments that you don't like. It's just not. It's not politically wise, right? How you can't. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, <laughs> you can't deal with that either. But like, that's that's the situation that's going to be going on in in both Spain and the UK for the next couple of years, right? You're going to have all of this tension because nobody can create a clear government. So, I I just I I don't. If I was, if I, here, I'm going to do, I'm going to put on my dumb hat for a second, and I'm going to be like, man, I could solve this problem in five seconds. I would be like, all right, all right, guys, Catalonia, you're going to have a binding referendum for independence, but you can't just get a clear majority, you need a super majority. Because if there's 50 people who want to stay in in Spain, and 50 people who don't want to stay in Spain, like, you can't, you can't just... It can't just be this toss-up thing where whoever like shows up, right? You need to have a clear, overwhelming majority. And if you do that, then yeah, you could leave. We'll figure it out. But if you don't, then you need to shut up and have some more, you know, you know, have some more power. We'll just devolve some power to you, and you'll and you'll like it. Um, that's what I would do. But you know, that's me being the dictator of Spain, and as we know, that's that's not good. So never a good thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Dictators of Spain. Uh, yeah, not. not doesn't good. work out well. No. Uh, oh, you'll be buried in beautifully. I man, it is beautiful and it's gaudy and it needs to be nukes from orbit. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think disconcerting is the word. <laughs> That's probably more. Yeah, more. Uh, more. Uh, a gentler way of saying it. Yeah, all opinions expressed by our guests are not endorsed by the podcast. We do not endorse nuking things from Orbit. Just just wanted to make that clear. I endorse it. I endorse nuking things from Orbit. Uh, Glad we yes. got that out at the end of the show. I want to, yeah. I, you know, I could, you could put it at the front, but I feel like having it at the on the back end allows people to maybe come to my position more naturally. <laughs> right. 
than would otherwise be available to them. You, you are both the water and the horse, and also the leader. <laughs> <laughs> the cart, the horse, the water, all of it, yes. Alright, well this was a much deeper, chronologically speaking, dive into Spanish politics and, and apparently history than I think any of us were prepared for. I definitely... I, I knew I would be talking about some of it, but, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I I wasn't sure that I was going to go into, yeah, some of it. I'm still reeling from the nuclear warfare bit, so... <laughs> all right, all right, By fine. next episode, I'll be, I'll be okay. All right, I retract any implication, you know, any interpretation of nuking something from orbit. I don't endorse that, all right? Oh, it's far too late for a, a, any sort of uh, recanting like that. Well, you know, I, the headlines on tomorrow. This podcast, we stand famous by podcast guest oh. <laughs> asked Spain from space. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, <laughs> I I guess I I dug that that grave for myself. You go on a podcast and you get a reputation as a nuker. What can I say? I, you know, no one's ever going to have me on another podcast. Thanks, guys. If I had on my Tinder profile uh, wants to nuke the uh, via the Los Caídos from orbit, would you swipe left or right? Ooh. Peter, Peter, go. That, oh, that's that was all I wanted to say. Yeah. Well, the uh, le left is for no, right? Is I, that how that I, works? I believe left is no. Yes, left is, left no, is no. Yeah, I think. I mean, I mean, even without that, I think it would have been a hard left. I mean, we've been talking for like. <laughs> now it's... Yeah, I think it would be too indicative of a violent character, and I'm just not into that. All right, fine. That's fine. <laughs> really? You? Listen, you don't know me as well as you thought you did. Apparently not. <laughs> okay, guys, before we sign off, uh, Brexit news. This morning we learned that Johnson and the EU <clears throat> have reached a new Brexit deal, and now Johnson first has to take it back to the UK and get Parliament to sign off on it, and then the EU as a whole, every single state needs to vote on it. Uh, this is the question that I will pose to all three of us. What is going to happen in the UK? What's going to happen in Parliament? Will it be approved? Well, we already know that uh, the DUP is not for the current version of the deal, at least as, it's, uh, as we currently understand it. Um, it uh, Corbyn has also said that he's not for the deal. Uh, and so at this point, unless there's something that, that changes in the next couple of hours or so, uh, it, it doesn't seem as though Parliament's going to pass the bill. And, we, we, and frankly, we don't even know about conservative support for uh, whatever uh, uh, Johnson would put in front of the, in front of the Parliament. And so, at the very least, what you can say is it's it's very unclear what the what the vote would end up looking like, but that it seems to be the case that there is not going to be enough support domestically for this agreement. With respect to the to the EU states that have to endorse this agreement, there was some discussion last week or earlier this week about the fact that apparently Johnson had reached out uh, to Hungary and basically trying to get the Hungarians to 
uh, to vote against the the agreement in the hopes that, or not the agreement, excuse me, the uh, the extension insofar as an extension has to be asked for, uh, in the hopes that basically Johnson could fulfill this idea of uh, asking for a Brexit extension, but also ultimately getting no deal uh, with respect to the uh, Brexit outcome on October 31st. And so with respect to everything we know right now, it seems extremely unlikely that this is uh, that, that this specific deal is going to be what ends the Brexit saga. Victor Orban, friend of democracies everywhere. That's yeah, right. No, I don't think we even need to get into the question of what the EU is going to do afterwards, because I don't think we're going to have an afterwards. I, I agree. I think the, the deal is going to be defeated in Parliament. Not going to predict the exact split, but I don't think it's going to be all too close with, with the DUP and the... Uh, all of the liberals and definitely some conservatives and probably all of the Lib Dems going against it, it's not going to survive. And then, we're going to be just two weeks out from October 31st, and what's going to happen after this deal falls through? <laughs> I'll say what I said a month ago. Who knows? Hopefully, the, there were some kind of extension will be granted and then that would pave the way for a second referendum, but, you know, the UK is about as fun as Spain right now. I'd say even more fun in some ways. I mean, I feel like I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm gonna regret saying this, but Boris Johnson seems hyper competent. Is there a universe where he does muster these votes? Right? Like, I don't know. I think there is one. I'm gonna vote yes on on him getting the votes nationally because i just feel like i have a feeling i have a feeling it's going to be i think i think he's going to make it work i believe matt ever the contrarian i just want to i just want to put it out there you know because because i don't think people believe i don't think people believe in him as an orator or a politician or a leader i believe don't forget statesman ah yes noted statesman all right. Well, is there are there any final thoughts on on this or in Spain? Uh, any parting words for our listeners. We never got to talk about. I was gonna at some point. I was gonna bring up uh, how how Spanish soccer got involved in its fascist history, but I'll I'll leave that for, for next time. The next time you guys have me on, um, uh, granted that the that that nuke gate doesn't destroy my reputation. Oh, we're never um, having you on. <laughs> I. I'll talk about that. That's okay. I'll I'll invite myself on. It'll be fine. You know, so it's okay. Uh, Peter, parting thoughts. Uh, well, I'd like to turn to uh, Syria and Turkey for a mm-hmm. few moments. Um, recent news coming out of that part of the world, and this is interesting. The United States and Turkey have signed a ceasefire agreement with respect to Turkey's invasion of the Kurdish-held areas of Syria. Uh, and A deal that Pence I has specifically... called a legendary, unprecedented achievement on the sides of both Erdogan and Trump. Right. And in the case of Erdogan, uh, he may very well be right. The agreement purports to give the Turks the 30-kilometer <laughs> wide oh. strip 
God. A territory in, in northern Syria that uh, that the Turks had been uh, aiming to to achieve in that in that part of the world. Uh, it's unclear right now to what extent that quote unquote ceasefire is actually being implemented. Mm-hmm. But importantly, uh, the the agreement is calling essentially for a pause as the as the Turks understand it, contingent upon the SDF removing themselves from that part of Syria. And so in other words, it's not even clear at this point whether you're ultimately going to have any uh, substantial uh, halt in the fighting, given that unless the SDF actually move out of that area, and of course they're not a a party to the agreement, um, that again, it's unclear that the that the Turks will actually stop their military operation. And moreover, insofar as that does happen, then one really has to ask, well, what's actually being accomplished by this deal from the U.S. side? Because essentially, insofar as we're somehow getting the SDF out of that 30-kilometer uh, uh, wide strip, uh, then we're giving them what they were what their war aims were in the first place. Mm-hmm. Any, any thoughts on your part? Yeah. As to I love how it. this is going forward. I love it. I love all of it. I love how we're coherently fixing the problem that we totally didn't just make ourselves. No, I, I think, can I clarify something really quick? Sure. In this agreement is, Okay. I have to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly. The U.S. is ceding foreign territory to a different country. Is is Turkey just going to be occupying northern the the strip in northern Syria, or are they getting it? Are they receiving? Is this a map change? Oh uh, no, it's not. An, it's not an annex. Well, it is. A, I, mean, I mean, it's a map it change. A in de terms facto annexation the area, but okay. I wouldn't. It's. Well, I think I think that if you get into that, you get into essentially. Well, what's the value of some of the uh-huh. uh, de jure uh, borders in the world? For example, right. what's going on in eastern Ukraine? Clearly, yes. that territory is uh, uh, Russian controlled for all intents and purposes. Um, this would be something similar to that, although ostensibly it's a safe zone, mm-hmm. um, quote unquote safe zone. And the idea would be is that it's still Syrian territory on which you're going to have Turkish and Turkish aligned Syrian forces and that the SDF is going to be pulling back from that part of Syria. Mm. Uh, and again, the reason, the reason that this strikes me is, uh, is something that doesn't really seem like it's going to work is because you've had the, the Syrian regime move into some of these areas with the Russians over the past couple of days to quote unquote protect the Kurds. And and again, given that this is a U.S.-Turkish agreement, uh, I wonder as to what level of, of SDF uh, support there really is for this deal. And, and mm. you know, it's so it's so recent right. that I don't I don't think we're going to know for at least another couple of hours. Huh. That, the the one thing that I wanted to bring up in, in in slightly greater detail was that as soon as we withdrew, Russian troops immediately filed in, mm-hmm. and like. Who could have seen that coming? We make a foreign policy decision. Whose interests does it serve? Oh, can I get a Kremlin? Excellent. <laughs> can I get a Kremlin? <laughs> Moving on with our lives.
Well, what's interesting to me about the uh, the Russian regime movements into these areas is that throughout the throughout the war, the SDF and the and the Syrian regime have not been uh, especially hostile towards one another. They've, to a certain extent, they've, uh, well, initially they were both operating in more or less separate parts of the country, but even as they sort of came into contact with one another, the clashes between them have been relatively sporadic right. and of relatively low intensity when they've occurred. And I just find it fascinating because on the one hand, uh, clearly, the Kurds want support uh, against the Turks, but on the other hand, uh, the uh, the YPG in Syria, the the main uh, component of the SDF, was very adamant throughout this uh, throughout this conflict that they were going to create some kind of an autonomous uh, state or, or quasi-state right. entity, and so to me. It's it's really just I, I can't say anything else other than just fascinating that they're inviting in the Russians and the regime forces and uh, just really unclear what they think is going to be the end result here. Right. I don't necessarily you know, think you, it's. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it, you know there are. If you look at and actually there are some there are some uh, uh, maps of the particular dispositions of these forces. The Syrian and Russian forces have not gone everywhere in the Kurdish held areas, but they have gone into sort of strategically important locations, some of the main lines of communication. Mm-hmm. And so again, just one of the things that I'm going to be trying to keep a focus on next couple of days and weeks is what is the Syrian regime and Russian presence in these areas look like long term? All right. Well, I think uh, for anyone who's listening to this, we've uh, either enlightened them tremendously or we've bored them half to death because you're someone who's here because I, I said, please watch, uh, listen to this podcast and uh, you're, a nice, <laughs> you're a nice friend. Hey, I was he's, one of those people. doing it for me. <laughs> Peter Konchek, everybody. Master salesman. Correct. (laughs) Master PR person. Thank you. All right, guys, if you've made it this far, thank you for listening. Thanks for tuning in uh, week after month after week. We know that we put these things out sporadically and as we can. Special thanks to Matt for agreeing to come on here and dance this dance with us. Well, thanks is a strong word, but uh, let's just say we're... (laughs) Let's just... Let's just say we decided to publish this episode. All right. Uh, I think that's Pete. Peter, you know, you say tomato. I say, you know, launch the weapons. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just a difference of agreement, right? Like an opinion that maybe one of us holds that another person doesn't. I think that's fine. I think that you maybe are trying to clamp down on my freedom of speech right now by publishing my words verbatim. I, I think I think we have to go back and reintroduce Matt as quote a very stable genius. <laughs> I am. I am. I'm an artist. I'm an artiste. I know how to solve this. It's it's we have you two go into a ring and do bullfighting, but instead of the bull, it's just you two, and you both get a sword.
Which one is the bull and which one is the ring? That's for you two to figure out. All right, we'll figure it out. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks all for listening. Uh, I'm Sasha Rajavan. And I'm Peter Konchak. Thanks so much. Talk to you next time. Bye.